According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. We are approaching the conclusion to this, uh, to this book. There's only 13 chapters, unless a, a 14th one gets written here pretty quickly, but I don't expect that to happen that uh, we are approaching the end of the book and we have been looking forward to Genesis. I've already announced that our next study will be a Genesis series, so we're looking forward to that quite a bit. But we're still uh, dealing with these things really in verses 10 through 14 here this morning. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And the eating that we have in the spiritual blessings of fellowship that we have in the church age is unlike anything an Old Testament saint either experienced or even could imagine the fellowship that we have. When Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and that he wants to come in, it's not a salvation passage, it's a fellowship passage, and we're going to dine, and we do dine with our Savior each time we're dining today as we fellowship in his truth, as we feast upon his word. And so the blessings that we have in our Melchizedek priesthood are far beyond anything that Aaron and the Levitical priesthood would have, would have even understood from the Old Testament standpoint. All right, before we do get started this morning, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, committing our time and our study to His, uh, to his goodwill, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. Father, we thank you for these that have joined with us here in person and for those as well that are watching on YouTube and joining with us remotely. Father, thank you for the technology that allows us to, to meet like this and to stream. Father, in all the ways that, we, that you have graced us out to, uh, to be flexible during such times. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble together and to receive instruction. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, once again, to open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts, Father, that we might receive the word implanted that is able to save our souls. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we deal with the feasting that we have here in Christ, we have an altar, and we like to eat, okay? It goes on to say, by way of explanation, and in fact, in a way that might actually surprise us. This is not the text, perhaps, we would have chosen, but the author of Hebrews did. For if the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. All right, so these are the verses that then follow. And it's curious because he's following up this, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And then he takes it immediately to a place, surprisingly, of the animal's body being dragged outside the camp where it would not be eaten, where it would be burned, where it would be dealt with. It would not be eaten. It would not be enjoyed. It would not be, the fellowship would not be there. And it's really, it's a strange direction to take it, but it's kind of neat. And I hope to explain that for you here today. The blessings that we have to have the very same attitude. In other words, we're not trying to replicate everything that the Levitical priesthood did because we have the realities that we function in, not the shadows. And to try to replace a set of shadows with a second set of shadows doesn't make any sense. We're replacing the shadow with the substance, the anticipation with the reality. And the reality is he suffered outside the gate. And we need to identify that. We need to go outside the gate. We need to go outside the camp. And that's part of our identification with him. So this is what we'll be looking at here. Now let me just advance our slideshow. We don't want to go through 20 different slides to get to where we are. 
Last week in verse 10, we were talking about the food benefits. They had an altar and they had food benefits. They had table of showbread. They had other food uh, provision that was made for them. And the animals that were offered became food for the priests and the Levites to eat. Under law, priestly and Levitical service provided food benefits. And, and we, we understand that. In fact, there's principles from that that apply to paying your pastor and the support of those that minister in the Word of God. And we talked about those issues as well from 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Corinthians 10. Now, the corollary under grace, of course, priestly service provides an even greater table privileges that we have. And it's not just communion. We're going to have communion today. It is communion Sunday. And we do partake of the Lord's table. We have a cup and a table, and and the language expresses that, that we don't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, or we don't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And so we're not going to ignore the reality of communion being, in a sense, the table. We have an altar which those have no right to eat. That's part of it. But we can't limit to communion, all right, because there's so much more. And as we understand it in John chapter 4, Uh, We have the principle laid out there, and then the big one is in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And this is the the invitation that where we can fellowship with Jesus Christ. Again, I'll put it back up here since we can. Some of you have really gotten to like this. uh, Oh, and you know what? I forgot. I've got to drag this over here too. We're still experimenting. It's a learning curve. There we go. Revelation chapter 3. See, before we, before we know it, we're going to get all slick and fancy and people are going to get the wrong impression. <laughs> we're not that kind of church. All right. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And how many times does this get used in a, in a gospel invitation or in a salvation kind of thing? Inappropriately, it is not a gospel invitation. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... And this is key because it's a part of what we're doing here today. We're, we're listening to the, to the voice of Jesus Christ himself. This is the word of God. We came, you didn't come to hear the voice of Pastor Bob. You came to hear the voice of Jesus Christ. You want to hear the word of God. So you hear my voice, you open the door. I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And this is the mutual fellowship that we have. Think about the intimacy. Uh, think about the disciple whom Jesus loved reclining on his breast. And the, the fact that food... Um, opportunities, meals, meal times are fellowship times and they're times of intimacy between believers and the fellowship we can have in the Word of God is, uh, is so precious. And so this is what we have. The table fellowship with Jesus Christ all day, every day, should we choose to, uh, to, to do that? Should we choose to meditate upon His Word day and night? We have this uh, dining privilege with, with our Savior. And so this is what we deal with here. All right, so then moving on to verse 11 and 12 then. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Now that goes to an unexpected direction, but we're going to follow. We're going to follow what the author of Hebrews is doing here, connected to our dining, connected to our fellowship, but realizing that it may take us to an uncomfortable place. It may take us outside the camp. It may take us to a place where, uh, where we feel dirty, where we feel we've got to get clean again. And, and this is what happens. We'll, we'll show you this. Perhaps the most obscure detail from the Day of Atonement takes center stage at this point in the book of Hebrews. And it comes from Leviticus 16, verses 27 and 28. We're going to turn over there. And it may, like I say, it's, it's, it's bizarre. And when you read the commentaries, there's all kinds of opinions. Well, why did this go here? What's happening here? And it seems really disjunctive, which causes some skeptics to think, well, maybe it wasn't original of the text. Okay, They always like to uh, submit that perhaps there was a manuscript flaw or some kind of a thing. Uh, but no, it belongs here exactly because this is the point that the author of Hebrews is making, that our fellowship with Christ is something entirely new, and it's on the basis of an identity. And we need to, if we separate ourselves from that identity, we just lost the fellowship right up front. So let's go to Leviticus 16. And... Um, not to read an entire chapter for you here this morning, but 
There is a context that leads up to verses 27 and 28. And this is a material that's well covered already in the book of Hebrews, material that the author has already alluded to, already addressed. The readers are very familiar with the material. The readers are likely themselves former Levitical priests. They're very familiar with the Day of Atonement. The whole concept of Aaron going into the whole, most holy place and the fulfillment that Jesus did in his, in his work that's been kind of center stage ever going back to, what, chapter 8, right? I mean, this has been the, the issue in all these recent chapters. But now we're going to focus on dragging the carcass outside the camp. What's that about? Why are we going there? When uh, everything else you think needed to have been said was already said back in the first 12 chapters. All right. So on the Day of Atonement, uh, we have this here in chapter 16, and not to read the whole chapter for you here, but this is the this is the, uh, the 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 center stage issue when it comes to how does Israel function on the Day of Atonement. Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat on which is the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. The presence of God himself within the most holy place was the death penalty for anyone that went in in the wrong way. And it was designed that way on purpose so that one man one day a year could go in there. And he had to go in there with the appropriate sacrifices, with the blood shed, blood for himself, first of all, his family, his nation, and, uh, and accomplish what needed to happen there and then come back out again so he could do it a year later, <laughs> okay? Again and again, year after year, here we go again, here we go again. And this is the procedure. One man, one day a year, every year, okay? Until it's fulfilled in Christ. And then Jesus goes in once, once and for all. He sheds his blood once, once and for all. And he goes in as a forerunner so that now you and I can enter within the veil. And we can go in all day, every day. We don't have to wait for the next day of atonement. We all day, every day can stand before the presence of God the Father. We enter within the veil, which is his flesh. We're identifying with him. He identifies with us. All these powerful doctrines, we've studied them. Now we've got to look at one more detail, dragging a carcass outside the camp. <laughs> all right? Just burying a dead thing. Why is that a big deal? All right. So this is the issue. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body and he shall be girded with a linen sash, attired with a linen turban. These are the holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. Now the cleansing procedures we're going to see as well, we have cleansing procedures. We have the, as, if you will, the confession of sin in 1 John 1, 9. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We have our equivalent, if you will, uh, by analogy for the, the silver laver. Um, but this is what we see here for the Old Testament priesthood. There's also bathing for the man that carries the, uh, the carcass out and buries it. Uh, so he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. You following all this? You're heading, no, there's not going to be a test on this after class, but it, you, know, you, you might want to either write this stuff down or bookmark it. It's complicated, and, uh, and I'm glad I'm not a Levitical priest. I would that'd be too confused. All right. Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. This is uh, part of the analogy that does not carry across to Jesus because Jesus required no sacrifice for himself. He was the sinless priest, the sinless Lamb of God. And so this element was not necessary on Jesus' behalf. That's what make, a part of what makes his so much different, so much better, and so eternal. All right. Take the two goats, present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. The whole doctrine of the scapegoat that goes into this. And again, stuff we're not going to necessarily get into this morning, but it's curious, isn't it? That you have two different goats to paint one picture because uh, Jesus accomplishes both. He's the animal that, that, that dies. He's also the animal that carries the sins away. And uh, whereas you need two goats to do that in the Old Testament because you can't just kill a goat and have it come back to life and carry the sins away. So you, you take two separate goats to paint both sides of the picture that are both fulfilled by Christ. And uh, it's, it's neat to go through these details and see this. All right. 
Of course, we got the expression scapegoat today, which is used in a different sense, but we'll let that go as well. All right, so more animals dying, more death, more blood. Okay. A fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord, two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense. Bring it inside the veil. Putting the incense and the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, he will die. If any of these steps, if he does wrong, I mean, his sons did this. Aaron's sons did this. They brought strange fire before the Lord, Nadab and Abihu. And so Aaron went from being the father of four to the father of two. And um, he was left with Eliezer and Ithamar because Nadab and Abihu burned strange fire before the Lord. All right. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring the blood inside the veil, sprinkle that, make atonement for the holy place, to make atonement for the holy place. Remember when Jesus died, he then ascended to heaven and he cleansed the heavenly temple, not the earthly replica. But this is the pattern that we have, that we see here. Making atonement for the holy place. All right. Sprinkled blood with his finger seven times. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. He shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away to the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. I love that expression. And uh, I think there's principles there that we can apply as well. Are we, are you and I? ready to be a man of readiness? Are we standing fast to, uh, to do the will of God? And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. You might have also noticed in this passage we have transgressions, we have sins, we have iniquities, and we have multiple expressions for what we might otherwise just call sins, but there's, there's other issues that we have to consider. So stay tuned for that because that's where we are in Colossians at the moment. Our uh, in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. Aren't those the same thing? All right. Where are we now? All right. Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting. So the, 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 the ram has been killed, the goat has been killed, the other goat's been set away. Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting, take off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place, put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offerings of the people and make atonement for himself and the people. Shall offer up and smoke the fat of the sin offering. These are the things. The, the one who released the goat as the scapegoat, he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. Okay, now these are the details that are taking us back to where we are this morning in Hebrews 13. Not in the camp, out of the camp. That's the imperative. But the bowl of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement for the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Now this is getting to where we are. Hebrews 13 is citing Leviticus 16 verses 27 and 28. So it took all that time to lead up to what we're looking at here. The bowl of the sin offering. This thing that won't be eaten. This thing that won't be enjoyed by the priesthood. But it still must be discarded. It must be disposed. It's got to be dealt with. The bowl of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering. All right. The blood was taken inside and sprinkled but the carcass shall be taken outside the camp and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. So here's the procedure. And this is what was done every year on the Day of Atonement. This was their annual event. And uh, once it was achieved, then they were good for another year. Okay, and uh, and then when it comes around again next year, here we go again, all over again, again, year after year, as a reminder of sins, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is just a shadow. This is a picture designed to teach the truth for the coming of the Christ. 
So this is uh, what we have. Now, this obscure detail, if you think about it, the, you and I, at least I, would think that the, the center stage issue is inside the veil. The center stage issue is we're sprinkling the blood. That we're applying it on the, on the mercy seat. That, that, the, that God is satisfied. He's well pleased. He, he must be well pleased because Aaron didn't drop dead when he was in there. And, and so the, the, accept, the offering was acceptable. And Aaron came back out. You think that's the big deal. That's the big point of the, of the chapter. Well, the author of Hebrews is actually highlighting what would otherwise be a rather obscure detail, maybe the most obscure detail, somebody had to drag that carcass out and, and burn it. All right. Burn their hides, their flesh, the refuse in the fire, and then come back. Wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Afterward, he shall come into the camp. This is what then is, uh, is coming to us. And what does it say then? Let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Bearing his reproach. We'll get to that in a moment. All right, but first, um, Hebrews 13, 11, if the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now why did that happen? Why did that happen? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not in the earthly temple. He did not go within the veil. To, he went to the cross to pay for our sins. Not within the veil. Okay, this is, this is significant. In fact, the veil was rent in two while he was hanging on the cross. I think it exposed the emptiness of that room. And it exposed not only the emptiness of the room, but it demonstrated that he wasn't there. He was not inside that room. He was outside the gate. He was in a place of shame. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree and and the public shame and the public display that the Father put him to. The Father put him to. So the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not in the earthly temple. It was not even in the city. Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame outside the gate. And I think these details are worth considering as well, particularly the typology of it, the, um, the element that you and I are commanded to imitate. Because the Scripture commands us to imitate. Scripture commands us and says, let us go out to Him outside the camp. And since this is what we are exhorted to do, I suspect we probably should understand what it's about. And what you and I would be expected to endure. Don't, do we not have our own cross to take up? Should we also not endure the cross and despise the shame? All right. Are we willing to go outside the gate? Or do we think we're entitled? Do we think that we are entitled to be inside the camp? That we're entitled to be in the, uh, the feasting mode? See, Some people want the millennium to be right now. We're not in the millennium yet. Different aspects there. Remember Hebrews 12 too? We had the whole Hall of Fame in chapter 11, and then we had the best example of all, which is Jesus. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So they walked by faith, we walk by faith, and it's called a race which we're supposed to run. Then it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Keep your eyes on the Lord and... This is what we're designed to do. We're going to do well in the Christian walk. Take your eyes off the Lord and uh, no. <laughs> Expect the next, uh, the next crash very quickly. Okay. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is what we're expected to do, despising the shame. I think a lot of Christians are willing to despise the shame just as long as it's, there isn't too much of it. Or as long as, not that often, not very frequently, they're willing to despise the shame until they realize how shameful it truly is. And then um, 
then they start to say, Lord, this isn't pleasant. I don't like this to make it go away. This is what we're called to do. And um, the idea of despising, we understand. We estimate it as worthless. We value it as, as uh, having no value. In other words, we value and we prize obedience so much greater, so much higher, that being faithful to God is worth so much and that this shame I have to endure is it's, it's not even worth of a comparison. I mean, it's just momentary light affliction. It's not even worthy to be compared. Why, why would I throw away eternal reward for such a temporary, um, you know, get out of problem free card or something? Just some kind of temporary make the, make the unpleasant thing stop. See, what a price to pay. It's not worth it. So he despised the shame and sat down to the right hand of the throne of God. He was victorious at the cross, so we should be likewise taking up our cross and following him. Now when we go back to Matthew 27, and we'll see the whole, again, not to read an entire chapter to you here this morning, but in Matthew 27, I would point out, verse 51, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The veil was torn to display, like I say, how empty it is. To me, it's, it's remarkable. Um, this, of course, is Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, and um, Jesus goes into the grave. And on, we talk about that mysterious uh, Saturday, because it's not until Sunday morning that on Resurrection Sunday that Jesus rises from the dead. The women go to the tomb on the morning after the Sabbath, and they find the stones rolled away, and the, the Savior is gone, and He is risen, and all the joy is there. But what was happening on that Saturday? What was happening on that Saturday? Well, it says the disciples were afraid and they were hiding and, and they were Sabbath resting in their homes and whatever they were doing. They were uh, getting the spices ready for the next morning. Okay, So whatever Peter, James, and John and those guys were doing, whatever Mary, Magdalene, and those ladies were doing, you want to know what the high priest was doing? He was working on the Sabbath, that's right. They were sewing that veil back together again. You think about that? Think about the high priest and his father-in-law, the former high priest, and the, the whole clan, they weren't enjoying their Passover. All these religious people, they weren't going to enter into the praetorium to defile themselves. But here they are on that Sabbath trying to repair a veil. All right. That veil was rent in two, demonstrating how empty the room was, demonstrating, you know, they didn't even have an Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was not restored after they came back from Babylon. There was just an empty room inside that veil. Demonstrating the fact that Jesus wasn't in there. The work wasn't in there. That was a type. That was a shadow. The real work was done on the cross and before God the Father when Jesus takes his blood to the heavenly temple and cleanses the heavenly realities. So we back up a little bit here in the same chapter and uh, get back to verse 31, maybe even a little bit before that. Yeah, I'm going to cover my point there just so I can get more Bible on the screen. All right. How often do you read the gospel accounts? Do you read the passion records? I mean... I recommend every so often, once a month or so, pick a gospel, work your way through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, read this account, remind yourself. Because when you see his, uh, the demand to release Barabbas, when you see Pilate washing his hands, saying, I find no guilt in this man, so many things that we learn from and we see the vow that they take, his blood be on us and upon our children. Well, they're speaking tough words now, but they're going to reap that whirlwind in 70 A.D., I tell you that. The judgment was ferocious. Releasing Barabbas for them? He was willing to release Jesus, and they said, no, 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 release Barabbas instead, crucify Jesus. Stay tuned for that, because this is a foreshadowing of Gog Magog, when they demand Satan to be released out of the abyss, and they march under the banner of Satan and demand Jesus to uh, depart his millennial throne. All right, then soldiers took him into the praetorium, gathered the whole cohort around him, stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him. 
This is the shame. And he despised the shame. And he endured. I don't expect this was pleasant, but he endured it. And he knew that this was nothing compared to what was coming up. The three hours of darkness and accepting the the wrath of God for human sin. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. They knelt down before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And we get a little bit of teasing. We get a little bit of mocking from our culture, from our co-workers or neighbors. And and we, we don't like it and we want it to stop. Or we compromise and we, we go along with the joke and we act like, you know. No. Accept it. Mocking him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Yep, it's true. <laughs> I'm the king. Jesus could say that. Yeah, you'll be, you'll be bowing someday. And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on his head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. Led him away to crucify him. Now, we read the text and try to glean some details. Read the text and then try to draw a map, I dare you. Okay? You can't do it. Say, okay, we'll start in the praetorium. That's a lesser location that's mentioned in the text. And then, you know, find an archaeologist to show you where in Jerusalem the praetorium was, okay? Find two archaeologists that agree. <laughs> I dare you. All right. And then, um, and then it says, as they were coming out, they led him away. That's the extent of our geographical information there. Draw a map with that. So draw the praetorium and then draw an arrow away. Right? It's like from the North Pole. Every direction is south. When you're leaving the praetorium, every direction you go is away from the praetorium. Maybe a clue in the term as they were coming out. Out of the praetorium or out of the city. Actually, both. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. In the Luke account or one of the other parallel accounts, he's coming in from the countryside. So that's another clue that they were going out of the city. Honestly, though, if all we had was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we would ask ourselves, how does this guy in Hebrews know he suffered outside the gate? Show me the word gate in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John connected to the crucifixion. You can't do it. Okay? But the author of Hebrews heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody. And he puts it in the canon. The Holy Spirit put it there. He suffered outside the gate. As they were coming out, they found this man of Cyrene named Simon. Near uh, modern-day Benghazi, by the way, if you want (laughs) to. North coast of Africa. All right. Pressed him into service to bear his cross. And they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Lest I forget... Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, Calvary, okay? Calvary rhymes better with the hymn lyrics than Golgotha, okay? But it's the same place, place of a skull. In the Latin, Calvarius, place of a skull. And they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots, and uh, sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. Now, this could take days, normally. A crucifixion could take days before the human body would give out and die of asphyxiation and so forth. Jesus dies within these six hours, gives up his spirit, and uh, they were shocked. The Romans came to break his legs and said, he's dead already. But this is the shame that he endures. Are we willing to, to take up our cross? Say, I don't want to be outside the gate. I don't want to be hanging there. I don't want to be mocked. I don't want my garments stripped away. My things taken. Why are they taking my garments? Those are mine. What is it I'm not willing to let go of? What is it I'm holding on to so tightly that it's worth more to me than my Savior? Because this is what the author of Hebrews is telling us to do, to go outside the camp, to follow Jesus. And so they divided up his garments and among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. 
And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right, one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him. So those passing by, again, we're trying to draw a map, we're trying to chart where's this location. It's evidently on a roadside or it's by some kind of a a venue that can be passed by. It's not in a dead-end street. It's not in the back alley somewhere. It's in public view where passers-by pass by. (laughs) Okay. Still, if I'm trying to draw a map and plot it somewhere, based on this information, I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I could do it. Okay? But Constantine's mother could tell us. <laughs> and build a church there. And, uh, and then they can still sell tickets and, uh, to this day. Anyway. It was always uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's favorite joke to tell that his, his favorite feature of the Holy Land is the Sea of Galilee because it's so obvious that everybody knows where it is and there's no arguments about it. And it's also so big that Constantine's mother couldn't put a church on top of it. So, yeah, just the fun things you can laugh about. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now these taunts get interesting to me, and part of me wonders, at what point did the, the, the light bulb come on? At what point did a little glimmer of suspicion start to cross that satanic mind of, of our adversary? At what point did he start to ponder, maybe this is a mistake, <laughs> right? Colossians tells us, we, we know that if they would have understood God's wisdom, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That there was an element of their misunderstanding at, at work here. And at a certain point, maybe here, when they start saying, come down off the cross, that reflects the idea that Satan thinks, I, I need to get him off of there. So it's too late. He's there. And the work is about to start. He saved others. He cannot save himself. And, and these are the, the kind of the mockings that, that we'll receive. Satan will tempt us with these things. We'll be, things will be thrown in our face. He saved others. He cannot save himself. You know, believers will be thrown. That, you know, after all you've done, after all you've sacrificed, what you've done, you know, and, and, and so the pastor gets a chip on his shoulder. Or he gets a, a little sense of, of um, something that after all I've done for this flock, you know, when when do I get mine? When's, you know, I don't deserve this, or I should or I should have earned something by now, and I don't deserve this suffering. And so Satan will use that. Look at what you've done for so many others. Come on, it's time for you've got to have a little you time now, right? It's got to be for you. He's king of the Jews. Let him come down from the cross. He will, we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. Does God really love you? You know, if God loved you, you wouldn't be on that cross. You ever hear things like that? We get these whispers. And this is what happens. You know, and, and this is, these are part of the, we'll talk about the elementary things, the philosophies of this world, that, good, that bad things don't happen to good people. Okay? That's a lie. But that gets used against us. And the, and the little whispers will come, well, come on, if you really loved God... Why would he put you through this? If God really loved you, why would he put you through this? It's not right for you to experience this. These are all the lies that Satan uses and the world uses. And we use them ourselves. We lie to ourselves with some of these very same elementary principles of the world. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. If he delights in him. And just sowing that down. You know, the, the, um, just like with Eve, did God say, did he really say you cannot eat from any tree of the garden? Did he really say? And just that little glimmer of question so that a believer will start doubting the truth of what God said. The robbers also insulting him with the same words. Say, okay, well, I've been called worse by better people. You, just, you, know, you, just, you ask yourself, what is the source of some of these insults? Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He's quoting the Hebrew text of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And that's, that's a beautiful thing too, because when we're going through this kind of testing, the number one thing you and I need to be doing is just reciting Scripture, cycling doctrine through our, through our thinking and just fellowshipping with the Lord and His Word. All right. Well, here we have it. And this is what we're going to commemorate. This is what we're going to commemorate in the communion service. So Jesus cries out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were open. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. This must have been an amazing Sunday and Monday in Jerusalem. Because it wasn't just our Savior appearing to the disciples, appearing to the women, appearing to the Damascus Road people, or the uh, Emmaus Road people. Okay? There were other dead, formerly dead people walking Jerusalem on that day. Hmm. Probably getting registered to vote in the next uh... <laughs> I tell you. My mother got a piece of mail yesterday from the NAACP saying that they were examining the voter rolls and they think that she was uh, removed from, from the voter rolls and alerting her that she needed to call this phone number because an important election is coming up. And my mother died in 2012. Why is the NAACP sending voter registration postcards to dead people? Ever wonder? I'm wondering. I've been wondering ever since. Anyway. Back to the topic. <laughs> um, so notice, where is Jesus doing? He's not doing this in the Holy of Holies. He's not a Levitical priest. In fact, in, in terms of Levitical priests, he's not qualified. He can't get into the holy place, much less the most holy place. He has no business going in on a Levitical basis, not to mention the fact that it's Passover, not Day of Atonement. So even the high priest isn't going into the most holy place on this, on this feast. Okay. He's the Passover, and he's dying outside the city, outside the gate, like the carcass is being dragged outside the camp. And we're to follow him. We're to follow him. All right. So, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not in the earthly temple. It was not even in the city. Jesus entered, endured the cross and despised the shame the author of Hebrews tells us, outside the gate. And so whichever Jerusalem gate that would have been, we can discuss that as well. Uh, and the different archaeologists will. There's the traditional location, and then there's, I think Gordon has a different location. And Anyway. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. And then we have communion today. Hebrews 13, 13 and 14. We have the reminder in verse 11 about the carcasses burned outside the camp. We have the therefore Jesus also outside the gate that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. Sanctifying the people. So then, let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach application for you and me. It might not be pleasant, but we are expected to take up our cross. Let us go to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Being sanctified by his blood, we bear his reproach outside the camp. Being sanctified by his blood, we bear his reproach. This is what we're called to do. This is our blessing. It's a privilege. We, we, the apostles counted it an honor in Acts chapter 5 when they were abused, when they were jailed, when they were mistreated. They thought it was an honor to be treated like their Savior. We want to be treated like royalty. <laughs> we want to have the easy life. We want to be served. And Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. The, the greatest among you should be your servant. And this is what we're called to be. Luke 9.23 He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is what we're called to do. 
These are his own words. The author of Hebrews is making the application here through this metaphor. Say, but I don't want to be the guy that drags the carcass out and burns it. I want to be the guy that stays in the, in the camp. And what are you called to be? Are we following the Lord or not? Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake is the one who will save it. What will a man profit, be profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul, loses or forfeits himself? This is what we're called to do. And it's curious to me how much of, of our Christian culture is more of, a, of an Americanized um, sense of, of prosperity and well-being as opposed to how much of, of biblical Christianity should be, uh, well, I think you get what I'm saying. <laughs> it's, much of what we call Christendom is not New Testament. It's not biblical. And we've substituted. And that's a sad substitution. That is an exchange that's not worthy. You gain the whole world and you lose or forfeit himself. And, uh, and, and we have missionaries with us this morning and they can testify to this, I'm sure. But uh, when I've traveled in different places um, and I've seen uh, churches in, in, the, in the Philippines and in Ukraine and in Africa, and if they get a sense then they need to become Americanized. I've given, them, I've given them the wrong impression. We've given them the wrong impression. They need to become Christian. They need to become born again. They need to be following after the, the New Testament pattern for the, for the church age. And, if they, and, then, and to do that in a, in a native context, I think it's a beautiful thing. I, 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 uh, the, the first time I was in, in the Philippines and, and watching the the, uh, the the girls and their their tambourine dancing, thinking, "Hey, this is not American. What is this, right?" And I'm watching, and they're singing and they're dancing and the the the, the clicky things on their fingers and the tambourines, all that. I, I knew I said, "I can't bring that back to Austin Bible Church," okay, and I wouldn't want to. It would be it would be silly. What would we really be doing? But over there is beautiful. Because that was their context, their culture, their setting. All right. And so, again, Luke 9, 23, if we're going to follow him, we need to take up our cross and follow. And taking up our cross doesn't say take up our easy chair, take up our cross. It's unpleasant. It's unpleasant. And sometimes, you know, we say, yes, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere, but could it be Tahiti? Okay. I mean, a pastor friend of mine now is starting a missionary work in Tahiti. I say, wow, you're suffering. Okay? No, I, I tease him a little bit because I love him. But, you know, what are we doing? Uh, Hebrews eleven twenty six. Let me stay on target here. I'm going to... What did I do? There we go. This was Moses considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches and the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Same principle. Same concept. What are we looking at? And when we decide, when push comes to shove, what gets pushed and what gets shoved? Are we going to compromise our faith to make the, uh, the shame go away or to mitigate the, the, uh, the shame? Or are we going to despise the shame and, and just stay faithful to the Lord? Are we looking to the reward? Are we looking to the invisible? Are we allowing the visible to, to distract us? Outside the camp means we accept any temporal life discomfort and servitude. Any temporal life discomfort and servitude. Matthew 10, 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. Why do I think I deserve a, a free and easy life? Jesus did. If anyone deserved, deserved a free and easy life, it was the sinless son of God. Why do I think I, why do I rate? Why am I entitled to something he didn't, he wasn't entitled to? Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That's parallel to what we already read in Luke 9, 23. Wishes to save his life, will lose it. Loses his life for my sake, will find it. 
What will it profit a man? You know, it's curious that we have a selfish interest to save our necks. And we don't realize, or to save our souls, but we're actually harming our souls. Living in defiance of the will of God is damaging to the soul. And so in the very effort of trying to, you know, it's not, it's not even a human, I think it's a sin nature thing. The sin nature has lusts and desires too. Anyway. Finally, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 10 through 13. We are fools for Christ's sake. Paul had to get this across to the Corinthians because they were, they were like the first Americans. They were, <laughs> they were prosperous. They were doing well. They were kings already. They were just reigning. Things were great in Corinth. As far as they were concerned, they were so uh, accepting and tolerant that they were even accepting the man of incest. And, you know, Paul goes to say, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. What a contrast. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, are poorly clothed, roughly treated. We are homeless. We toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I love that verse. I mean, that's it. Put that on a business card. That's us. Okay? Here's me. This is me, Pastor Bob, scum of the earth. Okay? Scum of the world, dregs of all things. If this is what he calls us to do, this is what he calls us to do. All right, so we need to suffer outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Where are our eyes focused? What are we waiting for? We're seeking the city which is to come. You know, it's according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, are you looking for these things? That's 2 Peter 3, verses 13 and 14. Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 2 Corinthians 4, 18, we look at the things that are invisible. Keep your eyes on the things you can't see. Walk by faith, not by sight. We need to be heavenly minded. If we're heavenly minded, then we'll go outside the camp. We'll go anywhere, we'll do anything. We'll follow our Savior. That's what he calls for us to do. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. I thank you for the blessing that we have to study to show ourselves approved. Father, I pray that we identify every detail, even the things that might seem to be obscure, they might seem to be um, unusual, and yet they can be of the greatest impact. Thank you, Father, for burning the carcass outside the camp and the principle that we can learn from. I pray that we do. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are going to sing.